Welcome to Chronically Narnia, the podcast in which my co-host and I discuss the Chronicles of Narnia chapter by chapter, and today we will be discussing chapter 11 of Prince Caspian. This chapter is titled, The Lion Roars. Roar. And there's a lot of roaring in this chapter, but as Mm -hmm. we get to that, um, I am the ram. (laughs) <laughs> also known as Kristen, and this is my co-host. A barking vixen. Oh, See, sorry. I was going to go with a lean and melancholy elm. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, it seems right up your alley. But I'm, yeah. a, I'm a barking vixen, also known as Chris. Hello, Chris. Mm-hmm. So, uh, today we get uh, some some things and some stuff happening in this chapter. We do. It's and a, I have some things and stuff to talk about. I'm sure you do. This is this is a chapter for you. I know you'd be excited about it. There's some things and there, some stuff. Both. Yep. Hustle Hi. and bustle. I know. We got a Christmas tree today. Yay! <laughs> we have a tree up now. A, a very large one. And I keep sneezing. Uh-huh. You're going to be a, doing that for a month. We got a different, yeah, a different tree than we normally get. And I normally sneeze a lot when we bring the tree in, so... Mm-hmm. Apparently it's just trees I'm allergic to. <laughs> That's a shame. You should move to the desert somewhere. <laughs> Looks suspiciously outside at Southern California. <laughs> anyway, um, should we get into this since we're on kind of a... Let's do it. All right. So um, when we start our discussion, we always begin by uh, doing summaries of the chapter. So as we're reading, we select we each select five sentences from the chapter in order to try to tell or summarize the chapter in its own words. Um, so Chris, would you like to go ahead and go first on this one? Yes, I would. Um, give us your summary. Go ahead and do this one. Sir? So summary as follows. And I do hope, said Lucy in a tremulous voice, that you will all come with me. The whole journey was odd and dreamlike. The roaring stream, the wet gray grass, the glimmering cliffs which they were approaching, and always the glorious, silently pacing beast ahead. Soon they reached the trees, and through them the children could see the great mound, Aslan's Howl, which had been raised over the table since their days. Aslan, who seemed larger than before, lifted his head, shook his mane, and roared. All the trees of the world appeared to be rushing toward Aslan. Yes? Well, um, I have four of those sentences written down <laughs> on, my, <laughs> well, on my piece of paper here. However, I opted out of using that uh, all of the trees sentence. So we only have three sentences in, in common. Gosh, we could have gone for a four. That would have been the first time, it, I think. It would have been. All right. I think. I don't uh-huh. know. Maybe. All right. So here we go. Here's my summary. Mm-hmm. On the march then, said Peter wearily, fitting his arm into his shield strap and putting his helmet on. The whole journey was odd and dreamlike. The roaring stream, the wet gray grass, the glimmering cliffs which they were approaching, and always the glorious, silently pacing beast ahead. Lucy held her breath, for it looked as if he had plunged over the cliff, but she was too busy keeping him in sight to stop and think about this. 
Soon they reached the trees, and through them the children could see the great mound, Aslan's how, which had been raised over the table since their days. Aslan, who seemed larger than before, lifted his head, shook his mane, and roared. And I wanted to include all of the trees, but I didn't want to get rid of the Lucy holding her breath one because I really liked the thematic element of Lucy keeping Aslan in her sight that I really wanted to include. That suspense, though. Yes. So I kind of just disregarded the effect of the roar since the chapter was just called Aslan the Lion Roars or Uh whatever. The Lion Roars. That's the name of the chapter. Aslan the Lion. Jesus. Um, Not to be confused with Aislain, the llama. Aislain, the llama. (laughs) Um, That tickled you, wow. It did, it did. Sometimes that can make you laugh, it's great. You know, Uh, I appreciate it when you you succeed in those efforts. mm -hmm. Anyway, so how do we start this chapter, Kristen? We start with Lucy convincing everybody to go on this journey, which they're very reluctant to do. Yes, we start with Lucy telling them all straight out that she's got to go follow Aslan, whether they come with her or not. Uh-huh. And Susan throws that right back at her and is like, suppose I say that I'm going to stay here. Susan's being difficult in this chapter. Oh, she, uh, yes, she <laughs> is. Susan's a thing here. Yes, she's like, and she's also, in this chapter the last one to actually see Aslan of the children. Yes. Uh, Which that's going to be an interesting thing to get into. But yeah, I wanted to throw out a couple of Susan's lines here right in the beginning. Uh, Susan's just like, don't talk nonsense, Lucy. Uh, Of course you can't go off on your own. Don't let her, Peter. Yes, and that's just appealing to Peter. Uh, And then so like, she's being downright naughty. Susan yes, says, yep. so like Susan's real upset about this whole thing. Like why I'm not really sure. Cause like Susan's not in a position where like they're actually succeeding and they're getting anywhere. And like, yeah. Right. Like, so, I mean, it's not like that she's abandoning a whole lot to go follow Lucy and it's really, it's other than sleep, but also it seems <sighs> like she just doesn't want to get to the battle with Caspian almost like, I feel like Peter is at least just like, regardless of whether or not, you know, like we're we're making progress or we're getting where we want to go, like we're all awake now, we might as well go. Yeah. And like Trumpkin is like throwing out logic uh-huh. and saying like, hey, I really don't think we're going to be able to find a path in at night where we couldn't find a path during the day. Uh-huh. Which is a very logical argument and and statement, uh-huh. and we have Susan, who's been this one appealing to logic constantly throughout the previous book, that like now it's like okay, so what 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 truly is it that's stopping Trumpkin and Susan from being able to see Aslan until the very end of their journey? I mean, I think it's a question of faith, but we can. I don't know, we can get there. But Susan believed that it was Aslan all along. Maybe. Susan believed, I mean, we'll get more <laughs> into that as we get through the the plot structure of the book, but like, hmm. or the chapter, I mean, but like, Susan did believe every time that Lucy said that she saw Aslan, that she saw Aslan. Like, Susan believed that. Mm-hmm. And Edmund's just like, well, there'll be no peace until we do. I can't get any sleep until we follow her, so let's just do it. Yep. And he's doing everything as sulkily as possible, according to the book. Though he did try to support her. He uh-huh. wanted to, though he still managed to come across sulky. Just, I, I just, I, I identify with Edmund in this chapter. 
<laughs> Truth. Uh, uh, you, you don't have to give any personal examples of that, but I'll do it. I'm just going to do it in a sulky way. You mean like the laundry today? <laughs> well, edit that one out in post. Um, anyway, so they so Lucy convinces them all to move on. And we, you know, start following a lion who goes through this really convoluted path through the woods that they never would have found otherwise. Like this hidden little path, uh, you know, trail down, going down the gorge. Down the cliff, and, basically, yeah. yeah. And Peter sees Aslan's shadow. Yes. Not Peter, sorry. Edmund, Edmund sees Aslan's shadow. Yeah, so at first Lucy can only is the only one that sees Aslan. And then the other children and eventually the dwarf are able to see him in turn. And let's talk about the order a little bit of who sees Aslan first. So we have Lucy, then we have Edmund, then we have Peter, then we have Susan, then we have the dwarf. Yes. Uh, Trumpkin, I think, makes sense being at the end because he's, you know, the logical, like, atheist of the group. Well, and throughout the entire book, he's always been opposed to the idea of magic in Aslan at all. He doesn't need no magical lions. Yeah. Um, But the other ones are interesting. So why do we think that it's Lucy first? Well, I think it's Lucy first because she's was the first one into Narnia. She's always had this deeper connection with Narnia as it's part of her childhood. Also, she's the Holy Spirit, but... Um, yeah, but <laughs> also I think that she is this kind of priest role where she is the one who is communicating between Aslan and the others. Uh-huh. And she's the one who's telling them about Narnia to begin with. She's the one telling them that Aslan's there. She's the one calling to them. Yes. To, you know, in the same way that she's calling to the trees. Awake, awake, awake. Edmund, Peter, Susan, wake up. Come yeah. follow Aslan. Uh-huh. Um, and Edmund is the first one to believe her. Edmund is the one who had the greatest uh, in- direct encounter with Aslan, sacrificing himself for Edmund's folly. Yes. To save Edmund's life. And to an extent, we... we We've never directly confirmed that Aslan told Edmund about that, but Aslan and Edmund had a private conversation in what prior to Aslan's death. Uh-huh. And so, like, it feels to me, it felt to me like Edmund would have this connection with, you know. But we also have Lucy the Valiant, Edmund the Just, and then next we have Peter the Magnificent, and last we have Susan the Gentle. And I don't know, like... Yeah. I, I, I don't know about the order because I think I think that there is like a, a profound meaning behind Susan not not seeing Aslan. Uh-huh. But I think that Susan didn't want to see Aslan. Like she and she even kind of says that. Like I didn't want it to be true. I didn't want to believe. Like I knew it was him. I believed you. I yeah. did inside, but like I don't know what to say to him now. She's just kind of done with Narnia. Do you, do you think that? Do you think she's done with Narnia? Do you think that she doesn't need Narnia anymore? No, I don't think she's wanted to be here at all. Yeah. Like, I mean, she was... From the very beginning. Part part of her that's also, like, that's her character, that she's, like, this wet blanket who's just, like, oh, ho, hum, whatever. Like, as we established in, uh... But is this, like, a comment about motherhood? Because she's always being described as a grown-up and mothering the others and using that kind of grown-up voice. Like, is this her wanting to be an adult and wanting to, See, like, we, we, she's trying to take on an authority that she doesn't have, even uh-huh. though she's a queen, 
Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't know. Which I just don't think she wants to be attached to this place, which we get in Horse and His Boy, where we have, like, the stories about all these, you know, suitors who wanted to marry Susan, but she never did. Yeah. And, like, she never found uh, anyone she was willing to commit to. And I think that's maybe a greater statement about her just not wanting to commit to Narnia. Interesting. And not liking this place. Okay. Even though, like, the one suitor that we actually saw was kind of a monster. Well, yeah, I can understand him, but, like... <laughs> but we did, yeah, we did have, a, like, a brief acknowledgement that there were other suitors. Yeah. Um. So there's that, or maybe just, But you know. she also doesn't go to battle. Like, it's... Isn't it Edmund and Lucy? Because High King Peter is off fighting the giants, and Susan is left to mind the castle while Edmund and Lucy go to battle in, in Horse and His Boy? Yeah, something like that. So... so. I think, you know, just how much any one of them has had to fight for for Narnia. Yeah. Like, Susan's been the one who's fought the least for Narnia. Yeah. And, I don't know, maybe that's just her character. Uh, here's where I think, and I'm not going to make, the, you know, uh, a definitive statement here because I can't speak for the, the dead C.S. Lewis. However, I think this is where he screwed up in the writing. Because if we go back to the previous chapter, Return of the Lion... We have Lucy for seeing Aslan for the first time and going to each of the kids and trying to wake them up. And she first goes to Peter, then Susan, then Edmund, etc. And I think it would have been way better here if the order that she woke them up in was the order in which they saw him. See, but then it would seem like it was less about any individual and more about the role of Lucy. Which I'm all about Lucy. This is Lucy's book. I yes, like this and so. yes. This is Lucy's book for sure. I agree yeah. with you. But we also have, like, this kind of acknowledgement that they were, wait- like, waiting and hoping for High King Peter to come back. You know? Like, yeah. or Aslan himself. Yeah. And Lucy is the one who's gone out and called to the trees. Lucy's gone out and seen the trees. Yes. Lucy's gone out and seen Aslan. Uh-huh. And so, like... I really, I, I don't know the significance of the order of them, but I feel like it has a lot more to do with what we've seen of their personal relationships with Aslan. Uh-huh. Like, I think that it has a lot more to do with that because at this point, the interactions we've seen with Susan and Aslan are just Susan follow, following Lucy to follow him to his death. Uh-huh. And then riding on his back to the witch's palace to to release all to to heal all of the stone people. Yes. And then coming back, and being crowned queen. Yeah. Like we don't have this kind of. You need to go see to the wounded, Lucy. We don't have this. I'm giving myself up for you, Edmund. We don't have this. Clean your sword, Peter. Like we don't have these kind of teaching moments between Aslan and Susan. Uh-huh. And Susan doesn't seem like she's put herself into a place to receive that kind of teaching from Aslan. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the... Okay. I don't know. Uh, so, like, I don't... No, no, sometimes you just throw out things that I don't have a response to because you covered everything I could possibly say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's what I'll, I'll, you know, I don't have anything to add to that, basically. Okay. Um, I do think... It's intriguing. Thank you, Steve, for that suggestion. He sent a text to us saying that intriguing is a good uh, synonym for interesting. <laughs> that I can use in a similar way. 
So uh, I do think it's intriguing and kind of cool that Edmund is the one who sees Aslan second after Lucy, and he doesn't directly see Aslan first, uh, but rather he sees his shadow, and he's seeing the revelation of Aslan by the effects he has on the world around him. Yeah. And here's, like, Lewis's argument for general revelation, uh, that even if you don't meet God, you can see the effects of God and be exposed to the divine through nature or the way the world works. Yeah, and it's it's also, like, two more things on that. Like, we also have Peter acknowledging that he might have seen something, but Maybe. he's not sure. Mm-hmm. Susan just ignoring all of it entirely. But we also have this kind of parallel to the same way that Aslan protected Shasta on the mountain road. Um, The way that he walked silently and invisibly next to him and kept him from falling off of the cliff Uh as just this presence there. And, I mean, of course, things never happen the same way twice as as was mentioned in the previous chapter and we did not discuss. Uh Uh-huh. But Aslan says to Lucy, like, things never happen the same way twice in this kind of challenge to her request that Aslan would ride in and save the day like he did last time. Uh-huh. And he's like, no, we don't do things the same way twice here in Narnia. Yeah. But he's sitting there doing exactly the same thing that he did with Shasta, guiding them down the mountain in the same way. Like That's a different mountain. doesn't count. Uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I just thought that that was something worth touching on at least because of the fact that that statement in the last chapter we didn't get to talk about at all. Yeah. But yeah, the, so Edmund seeing Aslan's shadow, was there anything else on that specific guiding of Aslan to the how that you wanted to touch on? Uh, not really. Um, I mean, it's more wandering through the wilderness. Like, that. At, this, at least at this time we're following somebody. Yeah. And, like, we actually know where we're going versus yeah. just pointless wandering. But we but. do... By the time they see the how, all of them see Aslan except Trumpkin. Yes. And so Susan has come up to Lucy, apologized, yep. and asked what she's supposed to say to Aslan, which I find to be a very priestly moment for Lucy, where it's Susan coming to, to Lucy, mm-hmm. and like not just in this like apologetic, I wronged you way, but in a, like, I wronged Aslan. Yeah. And I need to, advice on how to approach him. Yeah. And so once again, like that that conversation where Susan approaches Lucy about how to interact with Aslan and what to say to him is just this priestly moment for Lucy as opposed to this Holy Spirit moment. Because it's not Lucy saying like, hey, here's some conviction for you, Susan. <laughs> it's Susan coming and saying, hey... I've done wrong, and I need guidance on how to reconcile to Aslan. Yeah. Uh, And you bring up a good point, which I think could be the one major argument used against my whole conjecture that Lucy is the Holy Spirit, is that she's very much not a convicting presence here. Yeah. Like, very much not judgmental or convicting in any way, or calling anybody to be better. Like, even when she's thinking about doing that like you know it says in this chapter like she's thinking about what to say to the others who don't believe her and she looks at aslan and forgets this yes so this is very much not her place and i think that's kind of the biggest blow against my argument uh uh and more in favor of yours of her being in a priestly role because it's not the priest's job to convict anyone correct (sighs) you like never mind um (laughs) I'm not going to call out anybody in this podcast. Oh, no, no, no. 
So within that kind of structure, like we then have them arrive at the how, and we have Aslan say to Edmund, well done. And so that was a very, he didn't say it to Lucy. He said it to Edmund. He said, well done to Edmund, which I found so weird. Like, and like, I want to dig into that because like in this whole idea, like, why? Because he was the one that had faith. He had faith in Lucy. Yeah. Because Lucy didn't have to. Like, Lucy saw him and was interacting with Aslan this entire time. Like, he was there. Edmund is the first one who actually just chose to believe and said, all right, I'm going to believe Lucy. We're going to follow her even though I don't see anything. And so I think he was commenting on that. Yeah, okay, okay. Maybe, Maybe it has to do with that. But, like, we also... Yeah, I just, uh, that, that, like, that well done, like, Mm -hmm. very specifically stands out because it is a, it is a very, like, biblical reference and Mm -hmm. coming from the writing of a theologian, it seemed very, um, heavy handed, Uh but I wasn't sure what it was heavy handedly communicating because it didn't come across as like, well done, my good and faithful (laughs) servant, Edmund, Uh for... You have fulfilled the role I set out for you as king of justice. Like it didn't, it didn't make sense necessarily. But like, okay, your argument, absolutely, I would agree with. Yeah. And then we have Aslan turn to Trumpkin. Well, no. First, first of all, we can't ignore Susan. Okay. What he says to Susan, uh, he says, "Susan, Susan made no answer, but the others thought she was crying. You have listened to fears, child." So come let me breathe on you. Yeah, according to Aslan, it's not necessarily her not wanting to be a part of this or her not wanting to believe, it's her being afraid to believe. And this is coming from a place of fear rather than like apathy or her just not wanting to be a part of this. Yeah. What is Susan afraid of? I don't I mean, she's afraid of believing, I think. She's afraid of of Aslan being real, of letting herself be happy in Narnia to some extent. But she's also, like, he asks her after he breathes on her, are you brave again? And that, like, that just seemed so odd because, like... You brave again? <laughs> are you brave again? <laughs> like, it it doesn't seem to be coming down to, like, faith and fear. Like... But, like, he's like, you've listened to fear. Well, like, anyone who has courage or bravery has listened to fear and then done something instead of. Like, you can't be brave or courageous without having fear. Otherwise, it's just called stupidity. And so, like, she listened to fear and then chose not to act in the face of her fear. And that was an absence of bravery. And he says, I'm going to breathe on you. Are you brave again? So at no point is he asking her not to pay attention to fear. Yeah. Even though he's saying you listened to fear as his like admonition to her. Yeah. So I I don't I don't hmm. like I I feel like this is a profound moment for Susan, but I also feel like it's not because it hasn't actually addressed Susan's heart where like he's like you listened to fear. Well, obviously. Uh-huh. 
but she also like chose not to be brave like and and chose not to see aslan like yeah i don't know I don't get how Susan's character could have ended up in that position because we don't get enough of the internal thoughts and experiences of Susan that I want and need. Like, yeah, what's going on here? Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll get more of Susan's perspective uh, in the rest of the book. I'm not. <laughs> Kristen shakes her head. No, no, we don't. Yeah. Sometimes Kristen just spoils things for me. Um. Anyway, so then we get to this really weird scene with Aslan and Trumpkin. Yes. And it's weird because this is. This almost seems out of character for Aslan, and definitely seems out of character for Jesus. And this oh, is one of those no, it breaking. Doesn't. Like this is we've had Aslan be this rompous, riled up kitten figure before. Like Yes, he is, but I like <clears throat> it's hard not to look at this scene. And here's what happens in the scene is Aslan in a very like stern big voice turns to the dwarf, turns to Trumpkin, and it's just like So are we gonna have a problem? Basically. Yeah. And like, you know, pounces at him, takes him up in his mouth, throws him in the air. Yep. Catches, and catches him. him and it's just like hey we, kids, we cool now <laughs> and all of the kids knew from the look in his eye that he rather liked trumpkin yes like they could just tell based on yeah. how aslan looked at trumpkin that aslan liked trumpkin but from trumpkin's perspective yeah from trumpkin's perspective the, he just got attacked by yeah, a lion yeah and this is basically aslan coming up and being like hey look how easily i could kill you i'm yep. not going to i could do it we gonna be friends now? <laughs> like, since I like to reframe all of Aslan's actions into, like, a human Jesus perspective, I'm just like, imagine you're hanging out with Jesus, you meet him for the first time, and, like, he takes you up to the top of a building and throws you off of it, and then <laughs> appears at the bottom and catches you, and it's just like, hey, that was fun, right? We're gonna be friends? <laughs> See, I didn't kill you there. Yeah. We good, right? <laughs> and, like, oh. it's it's a very intimidating way to introduce yourself to someone it is but it's also like i don't know to me it's very aslan like especially in the face of trumpkin who this whole time has just been like i have no need for this aslan that you keep talking about Mm -hmm. all like because we have you know son of earth come here come here son of earth come here and there was a hint of a roar Yes. And I want to talk about the roar imagery throughout this entire chapter because there's a lot of it. I mean, it's the title of the chapter. Yes. But wraiths and wreckage gasped Trumpkin in the ghost (laughs) of a voice. So the children knew Aslan well enough to see that he liked the dwarf very much. They weren't disturbed. But, like, Trumpkin had never even seen a lion before, much less Aslan and known how to, like, receive this kind of experience from a talking lion yeah but like yeah we have i i don't know i like this approach (laughs) of aslan because it feels very it doesn't feel like demeaning and mocking of doubt but it feels very much like so you didn't think that you needed me Uh uh-huh you didn't want to accept that i could be real but now that i'm here in front of you do you think that you need me kind of like attitude where it's very much like here's what you thought you needed. Yeah. And here's where I'm at. (laughs) Like, 
do you do you want to be my friend no so i don't yeah i don't know i appreciate it it's an interesting meeting and the artwork of trumpkin in aslan's mouth is the cover art for my for my chapter you have the same one that i do in this yeah that's that is the artwork for the chapter of the lion roars for my book which and which i'll say and we'll post this on the instagram later um in this one trumpkin looks absolutely terrified Aslan just looks bored Aslan's <laughs> just like yeah i do this every other th- thursday like <sighs> another dwarf that i gotta toss in the air to prove my existence to uh, <laughs> just uh, throw in dwarves <laughs> no one tosses a dwarf <laughs> i can't believe i didn't think of that reference first no nope. wow all right i'm slipping okay so then aslan sends Edmund, Peter, and Trumpkin yep. into the how to deal with what you find there. Yeah. Which is which is very, uh, it's an ominous scene because they approach the how. Nobody comes out to greet them. There's no scouts. There's nobody intercepting them. Yes. And they Trumpkin even comments on that like, yeah, they oh, don't, we need to do better. They don't see any guards or anything outside. And then Ashton's just like, no, go inside. Deal with whatever you find. Like. <laughs> like, that's scary. Yeah. Like, what's going on in there? Also, sends the men away. It's just like... Yep. Before the party starts. Yes. It's like, we're going to have a good old time out here, but you you guys, no. You go away. Go. You deal with it. Go deal with your important business, and I will wake the trees. Yep. And then we have the titular uh, action. The roar. The roar. Of the lion. And I really do like the descriptions of this. Okay. But you you wanted to get into it, so. Oh, well, then what mine has to do with is more of the the reference to a slight roar in Cump here, the actual roar itself, and then the references of the characters who come later with uproarious laughter, with oh. roaring names. Like, we have, we have Bacchus introduced in this chapter, he but he back. is told, or, or we are told, that he has multiple different names that he's referred to by. Mm-hmm. One of those names is Bromius, which is in, an epithet for Dionysus or Bacchus, and it means noisy, roaring, or boisterous. And so when someone is described as Bromius, they're being noisy, they're being uproarious, they're being roaring, they're being boisterous, like... They are being like Bacchus. Uh-huh. And so we have Aslan's roar, which wakes the trees, shakes everything. You can talk about the descriptions of what happens with the actual roar itself. But it brings forth a roar of liveliness, trees being awakened, the mm-hmm. spirit of Bacchus, the celebration, the the wine, the the all of this kind of celebratory life and game and roar mm-hmm. of life and game and so it's aslan breathing life into everything uh-huh. in this roar literal roar that brings in response a roar of life yeah and this reverberates throughout the entire country yes like we have this whole scene of the description of you know nymphs and the the river gods are poking their heads up out of the water like the barking vixens and hedgehogs grunted, and like in towns and villages, mothers pressed babies close to their breasts. Men are grasping for lights. 
you know, far into the north and the northern border of Narnia, the mountain giants are peering out from their castles. Yes, that one really is, like <laughs> spoke to me a little bit, that moment of like it all going as far as the mountain giants' castles. Oh. So this is a sound that gets heard like basically throughout the entire world. Yes. Uh, it's like, that's a, that's an entrance. Yep. It's a good way to make an entrance. And this awakens all of the trees. Like, yes. this is what finally does it. And then all the trees... I don't know how many there are. <laughs> Do, I, I, I'm not sure. We've never had a good answer in, you know, the lore of Narnia. If all trees are sentient in some way and have associated spirits, or it's just some trees. Like, there's talking animals and non-talking animals. We don't ever establish if there are just regular trees. Yeah. Or not. We, we don't. That's true. But it says here, all the trees of the world appeared to be rushing toward Aslan. Yeah. So it's, you know, thousands and thousands of them just coming in from all over. And they gather, and then we have a heck of a raucous party. We do, and they can't tell what game is being played. <laughs> what, is, what does Bacchus say to Aslan? Is it a romp? Yeah. Uh, Bacchus and his wild women who show up. Yes. And, uh. he, and he is... <laughs> The, the, yeah. Yep. Uh, the, he, the, is a, he is a man you, you could imagine to do anything. Yeah, it's a, yeah, that's, uh, I did want to read that line because, uh, you felt as Edmund said when he saw him a few days later, there's a chap who might do anything, absolutely anything. Yep. And I was just like, that sentence doesn't, that sentence doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. <laughs> there, there's a guy who could do anything. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it means that you don't have any <laughs> I mean, realistic expectations of his actions. Or, yeah, like, he, he is unpredictable. He could do anything. Yeah, like, we've seen Bacchus mentioned before. This is the first time he actually shows up. Yes. Uh, Tumnus was a big fan of Bacchus. Well, yeah, he would dance with Bacchus in the trees and everything. But we also have Selenus? Selenus? Yes. Who? Silenus? Yes. How do you say his name? What? I don't know. Um, well, Chris. Selenus, yeah, sure. <laughs> um let's just go with that who in the lore in greek lore is kind of like you know a companion god to bacchus who is like his mentor and usually appears as a much older figure uh yes with this with with characteristics of a horse rather than a goat where where bacchus tends to have goat stuff uh-huh um and he's described that way he's described almost as being like a fawn uh-huh but then we also have, like, within Greek times and, and mythology, a group of Dionysus' followers was named the Seleni, plural form of Selenus. Uh-huh. And they were notable for their, their most notable characteristic is that they were drunk. Yeah. And we have Selenus here as the one who calls forth for refreshments. Yep. And suddenly <clears throat> grapes are growing literally everywhere, even on his donkey. That's kind of it's kind of terrifying. It's like yeah. suddenly grapes are covering everything. Yes, and we have like Lucy try to brush her hair back from her face, <laughs> and, and there are vines wrapped around yeah. her neck. Like, it's like that's a it's a weird party image. It's uh, terrifying. I do want to point out here something that I looked into, uh, where everybody is gathering together and laughing and partying, and they're shouting out this chant of, and I'm going to pronounce this very wrong, uh, "Yon yon, oi oi oi." And I looked into that because I thought that might mean something, and it does. So Yon, uh, E-U-A-N, is a old Roman name for Bacchus. Okay. It's like Bacchus in Latin, one of the variations of it. Also, though, 
is a very, very old name. It comes from the Greek and Hebrew, uh, Ionis, uh, which in turn comes from the Hebrew, Yohanan, which I'm pronouncing wrong, I'm sure. If anybody knows Hebrew, please feel free to correct me on that. Uh, which is basically the original Hebrew name of John. Or Yeshua or Yuan. Uh, yes, meaning God is gracious. Uh-huh. So that's what they're chanting out here, which is like this double meaning thing of yelling out Bacchus's name and also saying God is good, God is gracious. Hmm. Okay. So like, good job, Lewis, on that one and putting nuance into this. Yeah. Um, so that's what they're chanting out. All the grapes grow up around them. This is a you know this is like the most PG rated version of this wild party that Lewis could possibly put in here. I know, right? Especially uh, because we even at the end of this chapter have Susan and Lucy both saying, "I would have been really, really uncomfortable and felt unsafe with Bacchus and his wild women." I know. If Aslan hadn't been there. Yeah, and I and I think there's two fascinating things here. This is actually I think fascinating. One is that uh, Lewis's approach to other mythologies in this universe and saying you know he, he could very easily have continued with you know the christian jesus narrative of being like you know god is god and that's kind of it uh, but chooses to say that these other gods and other deities exist like they're definitely of a lower station than aslan but like all of these various mythologies and all of these gods are here in this universe yes and which i've always uh found kind of cool yeah. Uh, where he's like acknowledging like hey these belief systems there's something to them like they're not above aslan but they're there and also this line which you pointed out which i like i want i want to chew on for a long time where, <laughs> where lewis is basically just saying yeah party it up like have fun with bacchus do whatever as long as you got jesus there jesus you know if he's there as your chaperone uh feel free because he's not outright condemning this he's not saying oh it's wrong to go out and party and drink and frolic with bacchus just keep jesus in there somewhere keep yeah. aslan around yeah but it's interesting that lucy and susan susan both very specifically say that they wouldn't feel safe with bacchus like yeah. even though he's been basically summoned and awoken by aslan he yeah. is an instrument of aslan aslan just called him back up yeah and both of them are like, uh, I wouldn't feel comfortable with and all he wants, this all... subject of Aslan. Yeah, all he wants to do is party. Like, I don't know, he, he doesn't seem to be doing anything unsafe here. Yeah, but he his just... wild women. This <laughs> wild women. Uh, and we end with this party in the chapter, and we have no idea what the men are up to. Nope. Like, they're, <laughs> they're not enjoying this, for sure. Well, I would say that the next chapter's title of Sorcery and Sudden Vengeance. Which, best chapter title so far in the books, period. <laughs> Love it. I can't wait to get to it. Uh, it's probably going to disappoint me, but I do like the title. Uh, anyway, anything else we didn't jump into in this chapter that we need to cover? No, I feel like we, we I feel like we really touched on everything, including the things I, I missed in the last discussion about yeah. never happening the same way twice. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think we're ready to move on to our uh, summary or baseless speculation, whatever order we do these things in. Uh, we do our rewrite, not our summary. Okay, whatever. <laughs> so next section is uh, hashtag Narnia chopped and screwed. Yes. Uh, where we go back through the chapter, we find five sentences that we turn into our very own story. And you are going first, Kristen. Yes. All right, so. Got a good one for us? I hope so. Okay. All right, so here is my rewrite and... 
hopefully I'm telling a new story. <laughs> okay. I like how there's a question on there. I'm really not sure sometimes. Yeah. I'll get through my rewrite and I'm like, yeah, that was just the story again. Mm-hmm. All right. Refreshments, refreshments, roared the old man. The sound, deep and throbbing at first, like an organ, beginning on a low note, rose and became louder, and then far louder again, till earth and air were shaking with it. Wraiths and wreckage, gasped Trumpkin in the ghost of a voice. Here, there were more than anyone could possibly want, and no table manners at all. Are you brave again? Okay. Yeah, I get like a very like a Valhalla kind of imagery that you're going for <laughs> yeah, here. A little bit, a little uh-huh. bit. This, refreshments uh, <laughs> roared the old man. Another. So yes, and then that moment of roaring for refreshments, which uh-huh. comes from that kind of Bakian idea. Like, so yes, another. Have you ever roared for refreshments before? Um, I, you tell me. Have <laughs> I? Uh, possibly. Yeah, I wouldn't and put I've it past like, you. Bring me water. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Cool. Okay. Okay. Uh, so here's mine, which I, I feel like I went in a bit of a darker direction, but I did use one of your sentences. I that. had, I, I felt like this chapter could have gone in a darker direction and I didn't want to go in a darker yeah. direction. Just like last week when I did a dark one and you did a, a goofy one. Yeah. Like I needed a goofy one for me this week to be like, ha ha, refreshments. His <laughs> roar for refreshments echoed across the land. Mm. This, the imagery was too good not to use. Uh, so without further ado, here is my rewrite. The sound, deep and throbbing at first like an organ beginning on a low note, rose and became louder and then far louder again, till the earth and the air were shaking with it. The light was changing. It looked first like black mist creeping on the ground, then like the stormy waves of a black sea rising higher and higher as it came on, and then at last like what it was, woods on the move. Lucy, said Susan in a very small voice. I'm sorry. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> uh-huh. So is Susan some kind of sorceress? Yeah, which it was just me. Summoning up the spirits of yes, the woods? Me, me reimagining Susan as this dark power in the, you know, because she's the voice of dissent in this chapter. Okay. But, yeah. All so, right. cool. I like it. I like Thanks. it. Did our rewrites. Uh, so last week I really didn't, you're trying to read upside down my little notes here. I can uh, read most of them too. Um, so last week we didn't really have a baseless speculation just because I didn't feel like there was many places to go with what the chapter presented us with. Uh, by the way, in this segment, uh, I'm a person who's never read these books before. I don't actually know what's going to happen though. At this point there's four chapters left and I have pretty good, I get it pretty good idea. Um, so I tend to look at the chapters and just come up with wild theories based on pretty much nothing and speculate as to where the book's going to go. This one, I have another real one that I think works the same way that my Lucy's the Holy Spirit thing does. Okay. That, uh, another I was, real one. <laughs> as opposed to all of your fake Well, ones. ones that involve like the TARDIS and things and like things and, like, yeah. Um, so I have one here that I almost wanted to work into the chapter because I feel like this is imagery that's there. Okay. Um, I'm going to enter this by saying, that if you're a fan of literature, uh, there's a book you should read that I've probably mentioned before on the podcast called The Starless Sea by Aaron Morgenstein. Uh, That's a fantastic love story to storytelling and literature of all kinds. But there's a line, the first line in the book, or first two lines rather, 
uh, is there's a pirate in the basement. The pirate is a metaphor, but also a real person. And I really like this idea in fiction of, you know, there not being this dichotomy where things have to be a metaphor, where, like, you know, the curtains are the symbol of his, you know, you know, dead wife's influence over his life, uh, and they're not curtains. Uh, they're just blue. They're just blue. But I feel like a lot of times it works better in fiction if they're both, and if things can be real objects and people in the story, but also could be a metaphor and could be a stand-in. The best fiction blends those really well. And here's my idea for how this uh, book is doing that. Okay. So, <sighs> Prince Caspian gets desperate. He finds that, you know, he gets gifted the magic horn that's supposed to summon help to him in his greatest time of need. He blows the magic horn and summons, you know, though he doesn't know it, the Pevensies from another dimension, and et cetera, et cetera. The whole book happens. We've been reading it. We know what happens. Really? But I think that beyond the Pevensies being there, and I'm not in any way arguing that they're not really here in the book because they absolutely are real characters here, but they're also very symbolic of things that Caspian needs. Okay. And I feel like this chapter really, really highlights that. Yes. Um, so Caspian blows this horn, and then all these things and character aspects and things he has to deal with in being a king start to crystallize for him. So we have Lucy, who is faith and belief and hope. We Do you think she's faith? Because as you said before, she's not the one who has to believe. Edmund is. Edmund uh, is the one who gets acknowledged as well no. done. So maybe Edmund's faith and maybe Lucy is assurance or like knowledge or just relationship. Uh, okay. But sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I don't mean to break your... Go ahead. What is that? Breaking my stride. Um, so, and this is like my original idea here, Lucy, is like hope and optimism and faith. Susan is doubt, but also wisdom. And Susan is, Susan is discernment. Uh, Peter is duty and resolve. And Edmund is perseverance maybe edmund is faith uh and these are all things that caspian doesn't necessarily have but needs to find within himself and needs to wrestle with before he can become the leader he needs to be so he blows the horn these things come to him and where does where do these things come out of they come from out of the woods which are you know the subconscious part of caspian's mind that his fear resides in so are these you, are all these things are that you are brave yeah, these are all these things that are wrapped up in fear for him. And, you know, he sends his loyal messenger, you know, who could be whatever, Caspian's subconscious. Or, like, there's a card of Caspian that's seeking for answers. Or the superego. Yes. That goes into his fear in search of these things that he doesn't have within himself. Okay. I do like that as a metaphor where the kids each represent something of as of of Caspian's kinghood. Yes. That he is trying to claim. Yes. Um, with that said, I want to go back and not to harp on about this, but with that said, we again have me calling back to the titles of the kings and queens. Yeah. Where we have Lucy the Valiant, we have Edmund the Just, mm -hmm. we have Susan the Gentle, and Peter the Magnificent. Mm -hmm. And so we have these kind of moments that, like, but... 
with that said, though, like, and I know that he's the titular character of the book. Uh-huh. I don't want this book to be about Caspian. Like, I don't want the whole book to be a metaphor for Caspian. Uh-huh. I want it to be about the kids because I like the kids as the central characters of the story. I don't want it to be about Narnia. You know what? They had their own book. I want it to be about them, though. Uh-huh. I want it to be about the Pevensies. Yeah. So, like, yeah, you're you're probably right that this is very much this kind of calling back to Narnia of the things that it needs. What does Aslan represent? What does Bacchus represent? What do the trees represent in this? Because, like, we have fear, but we also have life coming into those trees and Bacchus being awoken and these wild women appearing and this the, the river god waking up and sticking up his mossy head. Uh-huh. And, like, we have Aslan there throwing Trumpkin in the air. Like, and hey, presto. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually a line in the book and it bothered yeah. me yeah we and didn't hey uh, presto yeah, yeah. flew up in the air yeah we we kind of neglected to mention that oh man and also the you know we didn't quite get into just how well lewis describes these grapes and his just like his great paragraph <laughs> where it's like we so, oh, and that's like the third thing we've established that lewis is like really into the ocean and seagulls he's real into horses he's real into grapes what about trees you've skipped trees entirely (laughs) trees yeah and bread toast (laughs) toast chris toast we we only mentioned toast like sewing machines okay we can't mention everything that's ever been talked about in the books (laughs) um but yeah grapes are a thing uh so that's that's my kind of baseless speculation though i think there's some weight to that and i wouldn't necessarily call it baseless okay but, uh, yeah, maybe that was intentional. See, but with that said, again, like I want to challenge your, your representations or at least see what my representations, what each of these kids represents to me. Uh-huh. Lucy represents to me very much this kind of priestly role of calling to a more divine, being open and willing to accept magic. Uh-huh. She is very much a parallel to Cornelius for me. Okay. And so where Cornelius has introduced him to this idea of magic and, oh, I know some minor spells and stuff like that, here's this horn. Lucy is him claiming that, you know, like, okay, I'm calling upon this magic horn to bring back some help. And Uh Lucy is that help. Lucy is just the kind of belief in magic, a confidence in magic. Uh It's just like magic is real. Lucy's magic. And then Edmund is faith. Edmund is belief in this. Edmund is, like, the integrity of, like, what what it means to have Aslan here or whatever. Like, just confidence. Perseverance. I like what you said on that. Susan, I don't think, is doubt. I think Susan is... Discernment. Susan, I don't think is doubt, and I know you said discernment, but I also don't think that that fully uh, encompasses the range of her character because she knows and believes and is also like, she and Trumpkin are very paralleled, where Trumpkin is just kind of like, whatever is going to help me is going to help me. Uh And Susan's like, what I know that can help me will help me. And sometimes that's going to be magic, and sometimes that's going to be a sword. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. Like, it's practicality. 
where it's just like an acceptance that there are going to be times when you do and don't have an answer uh-huh. and you have to keep moving forward despite. And then Edmund is kind of just this like, not Edmund, Peter. Peter is the one who's like confident, driving, it like enthusiastic, like determination. Yeah. So I don't know. There's there's a few different things there that I wanted to make sure got addressed as well on each of those characters, like significance or meaning. And obviously, audience, if you have any other opinions on what each of these characters represent, like some really obvious thing that we're completely missing we right now. We probably are. <sighs> like, somebody's just like, well, obviously they're these four apostles, like this is Jesus' inner circle, like, you know, Lucy's <laughs> obviously John, you know. <sighs> <laughs> the revelator. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, like, if there's something really obvious we're missing here, please, please tell us, um, your thoughts on this. Uh-huh. But I do really like the idea of, like, digging into what they represent as characters here. Uh-huh. Um, but I appreciate that Caspian has the ability to acknowledge a need and call for help, and that that seems important to me. All right. Cool. Um... So, with all of that said, do you have anything else before we wrap it up? No, it was a good episode. Tight episode, like those grape skins. Yeah. Tight. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been Chris and Kristen on Chronically Podcast discussing Chapter 11 of Prince Caspian, The Lion Roars. Next week, we will be back to discuss Chapter 12, Sorcery and Sudden Vengeance. And, uh, yeah, you can share your ideas about what the children represent with us at chronically podcast on facebook and instagram or at chronically pod on twitter or you can email us your fan art of some really tight grapes um at <laughs> chronically podcast at gmail.com i was gonna say your fan art of uh boxes wild woman yeah uh, <laughs> yeah no maybe not so much. <laughs> um until next time Never mock a man, save when he is stronger than you, then as you please. And if you're going to party, make sure you party with Jesus. Bye. The lion roars. Roar. That's a shame. You should move to the desert somewhere. <laughs> Looks suspiciously outside at Southern California. We're going to be friends? <laughs> See, I didn't kill you there. Yeah. We good, right? Hopefully I'm telling a new story. <laughs> okay. I like how there's a question on there. I'm really not sure sometimes. I'll get through my rewrite and I'm like, yeah, that was just the story again. Mm-hmm. All right. And also the, you know, we didn't quite get into just how well Lewis describes these grapes and it's just like his great paragraph. <laughs> Whereas like, we, 